Hello and welcome to Filling the Sink, a podcast from Catalan News. I'm Lorcan Doherty and today we're marking two years of the pandemic. Two years since COVID-19 arrived on these shores, almost two and a half million cases in Catalonia, 27,000 COVID-related deaths, over 15 and a half million vaccine doses administered, one virus and countless lives changed forever. Too many for one short podcast, so for this week's episode, we're going to focus on four people's stories. A language teacher with long COVID, a woman with a rare disease, a senior doctor at a hospital in Barcelona, and a Michelin star chef forced to reinvent his restaurant business. I'm joined today by everyone. Hello, Hello. the whole team's here. Hi, Hello. Hi, Hi How are you? Fraser Jordan, yeah. Christina Tomas White, Jared Scotch Folk. Great to see you all. It's the first time we all record yeah. this together, I think, for the five of us. We'd yeah. have to do one on COVID in the most un-COVID friendly circumstances, wouldn't <laughs> yeah. we? Exactly. exactly. We're exactly. all wearing masks, though. Masks on. <laughs> so today we're kind of looking back. Um, many of the stories kind of take us back to those first moments of the pandemic, which is pretty much for here anyway in Barcelona two years ago. As journalists, we were kind of really I know everyone was paying attention but we were like actually focused on every single case as it was coming in you know getting closer and closer um but it still kind of took us by surprise I would say I mean I think there were signs though that something was happening we just we because none of us had ever lived through anything similar we just couldn't imagine how bad it was about to get but there were signs you know they cancelled the mobile world congress yeah that's right that was um, a big Thing. But, yeah. it, but it was not until two days before the state of alarm when a full Catalan region was uh, confined. Yeah. So it was like, wow, that's a different yeah. story. Tintorra. I would say it even took a few more days uh, for people to actually understand the severity of the situation because I was working the weekend in the middle of March 2020 that the state of alarm was announced. And I think the, the following morning on the Sunday, I decided to go for, for a jog just before I start work. Uh, thank goodness that I did because it was the last piece of exercise that I got to do for a long time but I went around the sort of beach area in Barcelona and keep in mind the state of alarm had already been announced but no one knew what this meant there were still plenty of people on the streets and I just remember seeing loads of cop cars and vans coming trying to usher people away from the communal areas being like there's a state of alarm happening here people get out go home and like no one wanted to believe it no one wanted to go home and it really took a while to kind of let this idea kind of embed into our brains as a society I was living in France and obviously I could see like the comparison between Italy because it was the first country that announced the state of alarm in Europe and then Spain and then I was like in France and I was like so why are they not doing anything why Macron please uh, can you do something like it's and they like they were even worse than the Barcelona beach that you went for a run there like people were like at the metro without even a face mask. Well, no, say, yeah, no one was wearing yeah. face masks at that point, you know. They were not available, yeah, yeah. hardly any. People were making them at home. Yeah. <laughs> That's right, I remember that. I remember going into the bakery and get handed a homemade uh, mask by one of the other customers that made a big batch, so yeah, that's Aww. right. Um, well, you know, those kind of stories, I suppose everyone can relate to, but the stories that we're going to hear now are kind of uh, people who have been affected maybe in a, in a much more kind of profound level by the pandemic. We're going to start, Christina, with Tony Martin, who is in Martorell, just not too far from Barcelona, and you went to visit him this week. Yeah, I, I spoke to him a couple of days ago. Um, he was working as a Catalan, English and Spanish language teacher at a school for adults. 
but he hasn't been able to work for over two years now at this point. He got COVID early at the start of the pandemic. Um, but even before that, he was already on sick leave because he had had um, other health issues going on. And and the interesting thing as well is that he's had two kidney transplants in 1992 and 2014. Christina, you started by asking Tony how the last two years have been. Well, fortunately, <laughs> it's gone a little bit uh, better with time after two years. But the first year and a half, they were horrible. Uh, initially, it didn't seem like it was a really, really bad case of COVID. It was just no, no, no shivers and, and sneezing and coughing. But after the months went by, I noticed that I didn't recover. I didn't get well. And I thought, there's something really wrong with this. What, what, what's wrong? And that, that's when I found out about the, the, the Catalan long COVID group. And I learned that there were other people in the same situation as me. And then after the summer 2020, or at the end of the summer, I started developing neurological symptoms, like I uh, couldn't move my toes. Uh, I can't still move three of my toes in my, in my right foot. Or um, lack of sensitivity in the soles of my feet, uh, headaches, a lot of uh, uh, heart palpitations, a lot of neurological symptoms that I wasn't counting on. And so a lot developed not right away. Yeah, yeah like three, four months after. Yeah. So you might have thought you were already getting better and then... And then I was, waiting, I was getting worse. <laughs> that, that's, that's the problem. And I stayed like that for many months until I got my first uh, Moderna vaccine. And I improved quite a lot with the first, the first one. I've had three of them, and I'm getting the fourth one next Monday. And I haven't developed any antibodies at all, neither after COVID nor after the, the three doses so far. <laughs> so let, let's see what happens. The only solution they give me if the fourth one doesn't work is to uh, give me something called monoclonal antibodies. Do, do your doctors possibly think that it has to do with um, being a transplant patient? These neurological symptoms? Or, or just the long COVID in general? Um, no, actually, <laughs> there's quite a controversy when you talk about this because I'm treated uh, by two different, in, in two different hospitals. One is Canruti, uh, when I've been officially diagnosed with long COVID. And then uh, my, my, my hospital, where they've always been treating me for the transplant, which is uh, Velvite. And they're not very inclined to mention the word long COVID. Because some of the neurological symptoms I have might be related somehow to the medication uh, immunosuppressants that I take. But all of a sudden, three months right after having COVID, why do they develop like that? They don't know why. Uh, <laughs> but I've never had headaches, for example, all my life, many years on dialysis, which a lot of people have headaches, never had headaches. My guess, <laughs> it is totally related to long COVID. That, that's what I think. But since it's a new disease, most doctors uh, don't know. Has this changed your social interactions? Yeah, a lot. <laughs> because I'm immunocompromised and I haven't developed any antibodies. Uh, it's highly risky for me to go out and lead a normal life like before. I used to meet friends a lot and, well, go out for lunch or dinner. I, I don't do that anymore. It's, I, I go out with them for a walk, uh, always outdoors, always wearing masks. And that's pretty much it. Not, I, I, I don't do lunches, I don't do dinners, not even with my family. Yeah. I don't know if you could tell me a little bit about what it was like to realize that you were the only person in that was experiencing this. 
oh, it was such a relief because at first I didn't know anyone else. And even friends or my partner, they said, no, 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 it's all in your head. And they said, well, I don't feel well. I'm not, I'm not still well. I still have this lump. It's, it's never gone away in two years right inside my throat. And it's m- making me hard to swallow. My nose is blocked as if I've had uh, a cold or the flu for two years. So at first, when I said these things, they told me, no, it's all in your head. I said, it's not in my head. <laughs> there's, there's something really happening here. Then I heard about the group. I heard about people going through a process similar to mine. And I thought, okay, I'm, I'm not alone. The ear ringing, for example, excruciating. <laughs> it was really very bad. And knowing that other people suffer from that through the Catalan Long COVID group made me at least uh, feel, feel like, uh, well, I'm not the only one. These people have it as well. I told doctors and said, yeah, we know you have that. We, we believe you. <laughs> but uh, there's no cure for that. There's no cure for, for the ear ringing. I said, okay, hopefully we'll go away. And it's gone better, actually. It's gone better. But you know what? I don't trust long COVID. Long COVID is a roller coaster. Doctors still don't know why some people get long COVID and some people don't. So my recommendation would be for you to stay away from COVID and don't, don't, don't think, okay, now there's Omicron. It's a very, very mild variant. I might as well get infected and nothing's going to happen because people with, who were infected with Omicron, now they have long COVID. So that's my recommendation. <laughs> it was Tony Martin in Martorell. Thanks very much to Tony. Our next story is of someone who, like Tony, has had to curtail their social interactions completely. Eva Selabrovsky hasn't had COVID, but just the threat of the virus has changed life for her and her family, Gerard. Yeah, in fact, Eva is the only person here in Catalonia and in Spain with geliophysic dyslapsia. Around the world, there are less than 100 people with this uh, disease. It's a form of dwarfism. Yes, but also she can suffer heart and respiratory problems. And obviously, we all know that COVID is not really kind with um, people suffering uh, respiratory problems. When it came to the vaccination, she wanted to be uh, vaccinated from at the beginning of the when vaccines were available. But the administration was against the idea. So she says that she felt forgotten and alone. And apart from the kind of medical side of things, socially as well, it's had a major effect on her. Yeah, she had to limit her social interactions. She was a really sociable person before the pandemic. Her partner had to limit his social interactions as well, just not to endanger her or their kid because uh, they have a four-year-old son and he has a rare disease as well. And he has been hospitalized for the ninth time now since he was born. And obviously because of the pandemic and his condition, he was not allowed to go to school that often as he would not. That's an important moment for their life because that's when they start socializing yeah. and they are making friends. So they had to cut on socializing I mean, with people. I suppose we've all had to, you know, change our plans. Or we've maybe not seen friends and family as much as we could or we weren't allowed to go out for dinner when we wanted. But this is kind of on a whole completely other level. And now things are more or less back to normal. Yeah, she for, says that more for or less. Us, but exactly. For us, it's back to normal a little bit but for her she says that there's still a positive part from like from all this what they've been through these two years is that obviously despite missing their previous life 
they have been more together, they have been closer, and that, that united them. Mm. But she also says that in the future, she thinks that she will have her social life back again sometime soon. Estem segurs que aviat tornarem a aquesta vida i tornarem a fer la vida social i activa que teníem. Yeah, I suppose, um, listening to that story, and it's the same with Tony as well, as the world kind of moves on, these people are in danger of getting left behind, aren't they? We're going to hear now from someone who is at the front line in the fight against COVID. Killian, just this morning you were speaking to Dr. Robert Guerri. I was, yes. He's the head of infectious diseases at Hospital del Mar in Barcelona and also the COVID-19 hospitalisation coordinator. Okay, so and he began by telling you about those uncertain and confusing early days right at the beginning of the health crisis. The first cases that we saw were mild and we didn't know exactly what's going on. I mean, I remember three people that came from Italy. They were admitted into the hospital because they were positive at the they were doing well without symptoms. And the only reason to be in the hospital was that they were positive. And this was by the end of February, at the beginning of March. And then from one day to another, everything changed. And I remember perfectly the first person with a viral pneumonia that we saw that was a 28, 27 years old Canadian boy that was studying a master's in Barcelona. And I remember that in the night he was doing well and in the morning he had a you know a pneumonia and he was in a respiratory failure and he was admitted immediately to the critical care unit and i remember that we say okay we have it here we have a problem we need to start preparing for what is coming i remember that i admitted him i mean i saw him in the first time i saw him the day after and i saw how he changed in in the matter of you know eight hours. And that was the first time that I, I thought that this is going to be a, really a problem. How do doctors deal with these patients bringing a new disease into the hospital? Those first days were really, we, we didn't know exactly where we're fighting against. But, you know, uh, in two, three days, we needed to change everything. And then we needed to uh, prepare our hospital, you know, in two or three days to admit more than 100 patients a day. And that was, you know, really a, a challenge for all of us. You know, it was really hard times. Mm-hmm. And then if we were to fast forward a little bit, just a couple of weeks after those first cases, the height of the first wave, what was the atmosphere like in those weeks? Uh, uh, I would say it was like a, a nightmare. We didn't see the end to that. I mean, I remember that the 9th or the 10th April 2020, uh, I remember that we admitted more than 100 patients in the ER. People came to the hospital in a very, you know, very severe situation. And some people died, you know, even we were not able even to get them into the critical care because we didn't have time. I mean, they get into the hospital, they get sick very, very quick, and, and then they they die, you know, because we were not able to give anything to them. I mean, more than, you know, some oxygen, some respiratory assistance, but, uh, you know, I remember those days like, like, you know, a nightmare. How would you say the pandemic has changed your life? 
our professional life probably is not going to be the same, never again. Even even today, I am still uh, uh, dreaming, you know, about some patients I had and some situations I, I have li lived. So it's it's extremely difficult. Uh, uh, a colleague of mine, I, I was working at that moment in the critical care as, you know, as a doctor on, on call and, and we admitted him in the critical care unit. We needed to, to uh, you know, to connect him to a mechanical respirator. Uh, and I remember his, you know, one of his last words is like, uh, he, he told me, Guerri, no me hagas esto. It's like, uh, Guerri, don't do me, don't do me that. Uh, you know, and I, I remember this, these words and I remember this moment and I have dreamt, you know, many times on the, under that moment. And unfortunately, uh, he died in that. I mean, he, he never, he never uh, woke up from that, from that uh, infection. I'm really sorry to hear that, Robert. Yeah. Um, if I can ask you as well, what new perspective have you gained out of this health crisis? Uh, in an extremely difficult situation like the, the, the one we have been living these last two years, you know, uh, it's been really great to work with people, you know, as a one team. I mean, doctors, nurses, every everybody in the hospital just, only thinking in, in the patients that we were taking care of. And this is something that, that to me, you know, in an extremely difficult situation, um, it's something that made me feel really, really proud. Dr. Robert Guerri, the head of infectious diseases at Hospital del Mar in Barcelona and the COVID-19 hospitalization coordinator there. And Hospital del Mar... Even people from outside Catalonia might have seen a photo of it during the pandemic, Killian. Yeah, or rather just outside mm -hmm. it, because it's, it's located right on the seafront in Barcelona. And in the early days of the pandemic, a photo went viral sort of all over the world, I think, of some medical professionals bringing out an ICU patient to the to the boardwalk, essentially to, to look over at the sea, get some sunshine, that kind of thing, in, in the midst of all this uh, terribleness that was happening and suffering from the virus. Yeah, it's a it's an incredible photo. If you haven't seen it, just, you know, search photo Hospital Del Mar COVID and, and you'll find it. We've heard kind of three, if you like, more medical stories. Not surprising we're talking about COVID, but obviously it's had a effect in other sectors as well. Uh, Gifre and one of those, uh, we found an interesting story from a Michelin star chef. Absolutely, absolutely. So uh, obviously we have loads of stories of, of uh, store shops that have had to close and other businesses that have had to, you know, uh, reshuffle a little bit. But we found this uh, restaurant Las Molas in Uldacona, in uh, Terras de Lebra, in the Ebra River Delta region. Right, down at the very bottom of Catalonia. Correct, yeah. And it's especially relevant because it's one of the most important restaurants there. It's got a Michelin star, as you have just said. It used to employ 20 uh, people, well, huge uh, restaurant, 1,000 square meters. This kind of big restaurants where weddings used to be held. But pandemic uh, struck them, obviously, and all of a sudden, uh, this restaurant owned by Jaroni Castell, and who's also the chef of this restaurant, 
uh, just had to close. Bueno, en aquel momento, un momento de muchísima tensión, de mucha incertidumbre. And Jorge Castell spoke to a colleague of ours in uh, southern Catalonia, and he said, you know, I was suddenly watching everything happen on my sofa, and I cannot do anything. I'm like, I have a, a business absolutely frozen. There, I need to be something. I'm, I have to survive, let's say. What did he do? Well, He came up with the idea of cooking some of his uh, dishes in another format, a format that you can buy in, in uh, supermarkets or gourmet um, shops, let's say, these delis. Uh, and it's basically some of his meals turned to gourmet ready meals, let's say. Right, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so um, this is like Michelin star chef making ready meals? Correct, but it's not what you might think, you know, it's a little bit more sophisticated. For instance, they are selling uh, croquettes of foie gras. It sounds French, so that means something sophisticated maybe when talking about food. Other stuff like chicken cannelloni, foie with bechamel and mushrooms. So all this, uh, prawns too. So all this that they began to sell from December 2020. And he said it was an absolute success. Really? Yeah. It was a boom. I because suppose because as well, the customers, with the restaurants closed, you couldn't actually go out and enjoy this kind of food. Absolutely. So this is one of the three reasons he uh, gave us to explain this boom, this success. First of all, everyone was under self-isolation or almost. Uh, second, it was the novelty, uh, mm -hmm. like, well, there's something new, so I have to uh, buy it. And third, last but not least, it was Christmas time, so people are more prone to yeah, eat fancy Spend a few more euros on getting yeah. some nice food in. Absolutely. And at the beginning, it was all very rushed, so uh, his family was the one uh, distributing <laughs> this food in supermarkets and, mm -hmm. and uh, his friends and so on. And, you know, as time went by, the whole routine was uh, improved. And so, what, now have they, have, they, have they gone back to just the restaurant, abandoned it or what? Yeah, what uh, Jeremy Castell uh, told us was like, and now the restaurant is like picking up pace, not weddings or banquets yet, not, not so many yet, but the rest of the services, yes. But this gourmet ready meals have... Uh, helped them a lot to survive these two years and now they are like very confident this can be one more branch in their business so well, a, bit, a bit of a silver lining to the cloud no absolutely absolutely that's exactly what he said like it's important not to you know put, put all your efforts in one side because this site can fail let's say and it's good to have Another an alternative. That's one of the learnings of this pandemic for Jeremy Castillo. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. This is bringing us nicely onto our Catalan phrase. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Maybe not that. Uh, have we got one? Before? Yeah, actually, Jeremy Castillo uh, mentioned another phrase, which is tirarse a la piscina. Tirarse a la piscina. Throw yourself in the pool. Swim correct, pool. correct. And what happens when you do that? Uh, you get wet. If, no? if, if there's water, if there's water, that's ah. the thing. Whenever you throw yourself into a pool, if there's water, it's all very pleasant, let's say. <laughs> But if there's no water at all, you're going to be no, screwed, okay. let's say. So does it mean take a risk or something? Take a risk, no? that's, yeah. that's the thing. So okay. Gennaro Castell, by this initiative, he uh, took a risk and it was like, I don't know if it's going to be full or empty, this pool, but I'm going to try it. In the end, it was full. Tirarse a la piscina. 
That's us for today. Huge thanks again to Tony Martin, Eva Selabrovsky, Dr. Robert Guerri and Jeroni Castell for sharing their stories with us. Thanks to all of you as well. It's great to have everyone here together. A pleasure. Welcome. Yeah. Thank you. We, we haven't been able to do this over the past two years too often. And most importantly, of course, thanks to you for listening. We'll be back again next Saturday with another episode of Filling the Sink. Some of us, anyway. <laughs> Until then, for me, Lorcan Doherty, and all of us here at Catalan News, take care. Bye for now. Adeo. <laughs>